Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's Kuwait Program and Economics Department panel discussion on the state of the world, the Gulf, and the global economy. Um, this is obviously an event hosted by LSE's Kuwait Program and Economics Department. And while most people might already be familiar with the Economics Department, I thought I should say a couple of words about the Kuwait program before I turn around and introduce the panel in turn and then invite them to come up and make their opening statements. The Kuwait program is a 10-year multidisciplinary global research program that's financed by the Kuwait Foundation for the Advancement of Sciences. It is a program that looks at the repositioning of the Gulf states generally in the shifting global order. It looks at international capital flows and the role of the Gulf states in that. It looks at specific challenges that confront carbon and resource-rich economic development of the kind that we see happening in the Gulf. And it looks at the future of regional security in the post-Arab Spring environment, among other topics. This evening's event is obviously specially devoted to the state of the world economy and the position of the Gulf therein. And we have an outstanding group of thinkers and researchers on the panel on stage to help us think about this. And afterwards, to answer every one of our questions about the matter. First, let me introduce Jared Lyons who is the Chief Economist and the Head of Global Research at Standard Chartered Bank. He's an expert on the world economy and on international financial markets. Now, you will all know that Standard Chartered is a UK bank and that it employs close to 100,000 people, that it's headquartered in London. But what not everyone might know is that it is a bank with 90% of its profits and incomes generated in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. And indeed, Standchart, the very name, is a merger of Standard Bank of British South Africa and Chartered Bank of India, Australia, and China. Standchart Bank, therefore, has a history that's firmly rooted in the expansion of trade between Europe, Africa, and Asia. And it's exactly that kind of background that I want to draw on thinking about the position of the Gulf in the global economy. Now, obviously, tonight, Jared is going to be speaking in a personal capacity, but you'll also all remember, I hope, that in September 2011, when Lionel Barber wrote in the Financial Times on the end of the U.S. hegemonic era, he remarked that in the 10 years after 9-11, that it was actually Jared Lyons' wordsmanship that Lionel Barber then reached out with the acknowledgement that for the past decade, the three most important words for US policymakers was not war on terror, but made in China. Now I for one am interested in Jared's current views on what this potential ongoing global shift in economic power out there is like and what the implications that that holds for the state of our global economy and for the position of the Gulf. 
two of our speakers this evening, Arnab Das and Rachel Ziemba, are from Rubini Global Economics. Now, Rubini Global Economics, or RGE, is a global economics and financial analysis firm. And you know it carries out research and analysis of macroeconomic and geopolitical trends. But what is much more striking for most of us is that it will have been pretty much impossible for anyone who had the slightest bit of attention in the state of the world, in the state of the global economy throughout and following the 2008 global financial crisis. It would be impossible for anyone with those interests to avoid hearing the sound of the strong, authoritative, and articulate voice of Rubini Global Economics, enumerating the world's list of economic and financial problems, and then afterwards, this observer seeing how Rubini's most dire predictions actually get borne out. Now, at Rubini Global Economics, Arnab is Managing Director of Market Research and Strategy. He's based here in London. He has long written about emerging markets, boom and bust cycles, and he has long written about developed market crisis management. So in that process, in the line of work and writing that he has set out for himself, sealing for the rest of the world the perception that Rubini Global Economics is simply chock full of Dr. Do prognosticators. As the United States today heads into its presidential election next month, and the once again looming fiscal cliff emerges, what many international onlookers now interpret as extreme political dysfunction within the United States. Perhaps we will get on up to reflect on and combine his emerging market and developed market expertise to tell us the way forwards now for the United States, perhaps the world's newest emerging economy. Rachel Ziemba is the other representative from Rubini Global Economics. She is Director of Central and Eastern European, Middle Eastern and African, and Global Macroeconomics <coughs> at RGE. Her interests also involve writing on oil, sovereign wealth, and economic imbalances in particular. Now, given her remit and her research interests, it will surprise no one that Rachel has lived in and worked across the world, in the Middle East as well in particular. So she might well be the one individual up on stage this evening who best represents the official concern of tonight's event to discuss the specifics of the Gulf in the global economy. Finally, let me turn to Ian Begg, who is one of LSE's own. Ian is professorial research fellow at the European Institute that part of the LSE whose primary focus is to study integration and fragmentation across Europe. The European Institute is fiercely interdisciplinary, and Ian himself displays among the best of that in his own work on the political economy and economic governance of European integration. Now, sitting where we sit this evening, while we can watch the United States heading towards its fiscal impasse, and we can wonder 
or marvel about what's happening in the emerging world, we also know that what happens with the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis will have massive implications for the UK economy over the next five to ten years. This is the background to our panelists. This is also the background to the discussion this evening on the gulf in the global economy. What I would like to do now is to turn over to our individual panelists. We will hear from them a 10-minute opening statement, after which we will, have, we will introduce or describe or, out, or highlight some of the themes that have emerged in the discussion among the four, possibly ask them or invite them to argue first among themselves the lines of disagreement, and then also involve the audience in a question and answer session. We will be able to go on until just about 8 o'clock. So if you could now join me in welcoming Jared Lyons to the stage. If you like, make your presentation from where you sit. Yeah, um, maybe I'll sit here, it's, if that's okay with people. Um, well, good evening. It's a great honour, great pleasure to be asked here this evening. And I'm looking forward very much to sharing the panel with people I respect and hopefully disagree with later on, actually. Um, first ten minutes, um, maybe if I can focus on three areas. First, the global picture and why, despite all the downside risks, there's more reasons maybe to be bullish than bearish. Second, on China and why China will face setbacks along the way in coming years. And third, some comments on the Middle East region. First, in terms of the world economy, um, having been bearish about the world economy in recent years, um, indeed for the last seven years our forecasts have been way, way, way below those of the IMF. We find ourselves in the strange position of having a forecast for next year that's slightly more bullish than the International Monetary Fund. But it's important to stress that it's easy to be bearish about the world economy, and I think it's very important in any of the discussions about the world economy to recognise that there are some considerable downside risks. Indeed, the markets go from worrying about one region of the world to another. Three months ago, it was worries about Europe. Um, the European Central Bank has pulled us back from the brink, and instead it's worries about the states and about China that have come to the fore. I think it's important, as we'll discuss, to recognise there are downside risks in all those three key regions. On top of that, there are significant geopolitical risks, both in the Middle East, particularly if the Syrian regime changes and there's contagion there, and also very evidently in the Asia-Pacific region already, reflecting what is probably the most important shift that's taking place, the shift in American focus towards Asia-Pacific. So it's easy to be downside and negative. But at the same time, it's important to recognise that there are some underlying changes taking place. But to put the optimism in perspective, it's really not much optimism. The world economy boomed, uh, most people didn't realise it, in 2010, growing, um, sorry, two th yeah, um, yeah, 2010, uh, growing 4.4%. That was largely due to all the policy, policy measures in the West and due to the fact that emerging economies were growing very strongly. As we moved into last year, the world economy slowed significantly to just over 3%. That was as the policy measures in the West wore off and as Europe 
including the UK, adopted too austere a policy on the fiscal side. And at the same time, emerging economies last year started to tighten policy to curb higher food and energy prices. As we moved into this year, the world economy was already losing momentum. The forecast we had at Standard Chartered this time a year ago was the most pessimistic out there. We forecast only 2.2% growth for the world economy this year. This is not using purchasing power parity, but actual prices. Uh, but this year, the world economy is probably about 2.5%. Anything below 3% is really a world recession. Um, next year, the world economy, in our view, is going to just grow a shade over 3%, and in the following year, 3.7%. So it's important to manage expectations. The world economy is still growing, but it's growing at a slower pace. But if you're sat here in the West, you would think the world economy is not growing. But if I was to quote the figures 32, 62, 72 to you, you'll get a perspective of how the world is changing. Beginning of this century, the world economy in size was $32 trillion. The evening Lehman Brothers was going bust, the world economy was $62 trillion. And at the end of this year, despite a pretty sluggish pace of growth, the world economy will hit $72 trillion. These are nominal figures. A small amount of that is inflation, but the vast bulk of it is actual growth. The trouble for the West is the growth is in the other part of the world. So the cake is getting bigger. In terms of the outlook, to conclude the first part, in terms of the outlook, I think it's important, whichever economy you look at, the outcome depends on the interaction between the fundamentals, policy, and confidence. The fundamentals in the West are still pretty fragile. America is turning the corner and is in much better shape than Europe, but America is only experiencing a steady to sluggish recovery, around 2 to 3%. Europe, as we'll hear about in a moment, still has its own problems. But in the, while the West has a fragile situation, the East is more resilient. In terms of policy, the best way to think about policy, in my view, is to say we've gone from the three S's to the three T's to the three U's. As this crisis broke, we had the three S's. Gordon Brown, much frowned upon in the West, actually did a good thing. In fact, the two big calls Gordon Brown has had to make of his time in office will be seen by historians as big positive calls, not joining the euro and actually getting the G20 to co coordinate policy. And the G20's coordinated policy was the three S's, sizable, synchronised and successful. It pulled us back from a depression. Since then, we've had the three T's, targeted, temporary um, and in some respects tiny policy measures across different parts of the world. But now we've got the three U's, particularly monetary policy. Monetary policy is now unlimited. It's unclear whether it's having any impact and it's unknown what the longer-term consequences are. Hence, markets are not sure how to price risk. There's <coughs> lots of money around because monetary policy is unlimited, but markets aren't sure whether there's going to be a recovery because of this monetary policy, and the markets are terrified, hence the unclear aspect about the longer-term consequences. And the final area, fundamentals, policy and confidence, is that confidence here is still pretty poor, Hence, big companies in the West who have money to spend aren't spending, whereas you go to any other part of the world, confidence is a lot higher. Second part, China. China is changing. The important thing to stress about China is that even though the media is focusing on the political change in the next few weeks, the policymakers in China and the politicians seem pretty committed to the same monetary and fiscal policy. China is fundamentally shifting. 
It's gone from low income to middle income, and it's done that relatively successfully. Now it's got the big challenge to go from middle income to higher income. And roughly speaking, only one in three countries make that change. Hence, last year, China came out with its 12th five-year plan to fundamentally shift the economy to more spending on consumption, to social welfare, and to the green economy. Earlier this year, it came out with the World Bank 2030 report, which basically said China can't innovate. And Danny at the beginning said the three words that characterized the last decade were made in China. The three words that will likely characterize this decade will be bought by China because they have to buy the technology, the innovation, and the, basically the things they don't yet have at home. The challenge in China is that after the crisis a few years ago, the Chinese economy, like emerging economies, were hit hard. They were not completely insulated from problems in the West. Then they threw the kitchen sink at the problem. The economy rebounded. As China has slowed this year, the markets have said, is it a hard landing or is it a soft landing? Currently, it looks like a soft landing, but the data leaves a lot to be desired. But most people including ourselves at one stage, expected the Chinese to pump a lot more money into the economy. They've resisted that temptation. Why? Because when you go to China and speak to the policymakers, they think many of the things they did three or four years ago caused as many problems as they solved. They threw money at the economy. What happened? Local governments got into difficulty. They built lots of roads. What happened? Many of them got built so quickly, they started to fall to pieces this year. So they're resisting the temptation to pump lots of money into the economy. And the challenge is, can they really manoeuvre the economy to be going from hard to a soft landing, from high rates of growth above 10% to where they want it to be at 7.5%? The reality is they aren't going to be able to manage the economy as well as they probably think. All the things we take for granted in the West, institutions, they don't have in China. David Cameron sort of didn't answer a question properly about the Magna Carta when he was in the States recently. But when you think back, that was, gosh, 750 years ago. China, you don't even have property rights now. So when you look at China, it's important to say that the economy has done fundamentally well, but now it's entering what is a really difficult stage. And to conclude the second part about China, what China does has a bearing on all other emerging economies. One of the significant trends in recent years has been new trade corridors, rising trade amongst emerging economies. The other big change is the US-China and US-Asia relationship. Obama's used many words in his three and a half years in office, but the two most important were the word and and pivot. Soon after he came to power, he changed the relationship with China from strategic economic to strategic and economic. And since then, it's been economic on one front, strategic another front. This time a year ago, he used the word pivot. He said the focus of American future policy is a pivot with Asia. Basically, Europe, you're on your own. Our focus now is Asia-Pacific. And how China and the US play out in that remains to be seen. I would, to conclude the second part, say it's a Cold War already in its early stages. Third and finally, what does it mean for the Middle East? I'll be very brief partly because I'm not an expert in the Middle East, even though I do visit it regularly. Uh, the three Ds, in my view, explain the Middle East. Demographics, diversification, and democracy. Demographics, it's a young, young region. Take Kuwait, average age 28, population set to grow by 24% in the next 10 years. Young people need jobs. They don't actually get any in the West. Uh, they don't really have too many in the Middle East either. The way they get jobs and the way to keep <coughs> the populations happy is to diversify. Yet, the countries with the oil, including Kuwait, 
don't really diversify. In fact, in the region, the non-oil economies are only growing at half the rate of growth of the oil economies. Some countries are trying to diversify, Saudi, Qatar, um, the Emirates, but there still is a long way to go. The region needs to diversify to generate jobs. And that leads on to the last D, democracy. Um, well, Kuwait's not had a parliament, I think, since June this year. Um, its election is early December, I think. Um, but democracy is a big issue in the region. So I think there are some fundamental underlying challenges. And obviously, if America has a pivot with Asia, then how does the Middle East play out? And if America's shale gas revolution is as big a revolution as the Americans say it is, then that clearly has implications for the Middle East. So I've run 10 minutes, but conclude three areas. First, the world economy. There are significant downside risks. Um, the 3% growth we expect next year and the 3.7% the following year in any normal time would be regarded as not much to shout about. But given where we've been, at least it's a glimmer of hope. Second, China. Um, the Chinese are manoeuvring their economy and are now in a very difficult stage. Um, the trend is up, but we should expect setbacks along the way and the implications for the Middle East are three Ds. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. If I can turn now to Rachel. Sure. Great. Um, I'm going to, um, Jared gave a, put, put out a lot there, which I'll take up a little bit of. I, I am, as Danny hinted, going to try to focus most of my remarks on the Middle East and think about the, where the Gulf, um, you know, in particular fits in. But just to kind of give context to my remarks um, and hopefully not to preempt what Arnab is going to say later, I want to just lay down what our baseline is for the global economy because I think without that we can't think about the Middle East role in it and the way that the, the risk, the unsustainable growth models in the Middle East are also adding to the vulnerabilities of the, of the global economy, particularly through the oil channel. And one thing I would stress in general when thinking about the Middle East, even for countries that are not exporters of oil and gas, oil still very much drives the economy, drives capital flows, and, and I think also drives the willingness of the richer countries in the region to, um, to invest elsewhere in the, in, in the region. So just to kind of put out there very briefly, as Danny alluded to, um, Rubini Global Economics, you know, is, is, you know, we probably um, we, well, we still, see, you know, we still see not only the downside risk that Jared noted, but um, I think the issue really is when we look around the world and we think about what the meaningful upside risks to policy, they are, in, they are about policy. They're about policy implementation. And so when we think about the Eurozone, the sort of implementation risk remains very high. You still have many governments around a table. And if we look at the history of the last several years, we've tended to see crisis and then active response, and then a lull of complacency, and then additional crisis. Now, one could look at that and take the logical uh, conclusion that the actual that the risk of something outright disorderly that takes us back to a Lehman Brothers event of cascading defaults is unlikely. And and we would we would read the recent burst of you know liquidity and ECB action in that in that light. The risk of something disorderly has has diminished. But this is not a stable situation that encourages long-term investment. And I think from a global economic perspective, what becomes really important is, is it an environment where people feel comfortable making long-term investment decisions? So we have an environment where the Eurozone is in recession, 
we have an environment where we continue to lurch from, um, you know, for with based on policy. We have a U.S. where growth is okay, but about to be hit with the fisc with the fiscal cliff. We have a political system that's very divided, um, and and we have a China that is undergoing a, stru a structural shift. And so, and, and in our view, that structural shift is going to mean growth comes down to four to six percent in 2014 to 16. That's going to be mostly driven by consumption, but that is a meaningful step 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 downwards, and that's going to affect not only emerging markets but the global economy, right? <coughs> and we also have this at a point where a lot of the other big emerging markets have also slowed down. This is a year where Brazil, India, Turkey. Even Russia now are, have slowed down. Um, so I think one lesson I would sort of you know, take away is to say that in this uncertain environment where developed markets, fragile, are undergoing balance sheet repair, um, that it puts pressure on countries, first of all, to find new growth models around the world, but also it puts pressure on countries whose balance, she whose, whose balance sheets are vulnerable. Um, for example, a country like Turkey, where, where we, where, where, which is so reliant on foreign capital inflows, but continues to have a business environment that doesn't necessarily encourage long-term investment. They have plenty of financing for today, but, there's a, but future growth remains uncertain. And I'm happy, you know, I don't want to take too long on individual question, countries because of the time limit. Turkey is probably a nice segue into, the, into thinking about the Middle East, particularly because one of the great sort of shifts that Turkey has undergone has been a shift towards the Middle East, first politically and then later um, economically. Um, Turkey, a few years ago, 50% of exports went to the European Union. Now 34 or so percent do, and about the same amount goes to the Middle East. Now that sounds, and that reflects several structural shifts. Some of it is that um, it's not just China that's going to be buying a lot of goods over the next few years. Um, the, the Gulf in particular, it's not going to be as big as China, but these are very much the trajectory of growth is going to be very much consumption-led in these countries because of domestic political decisions to transfer more of that oil wealth to populations. They may not be able to create enough jobs, but in the rich countries, they can put more money in people's pockets. Um, but the but the vulnerability stands in the, in in this in in several in several ways. Um, we would sort of looking out if we look at three three crises or shocks hit the Middle East over the last four years, um, and each of the and that's the global financial crisis, the the eurozone crisis, which we would so you know I would, which would be a outcome of. Uh, connected to the global financial crisis in the Arab Spring. And those three shocks and those risks to growth, also to social stability, meant that countries ranging from Saudi Arabia to Kuwait um, to even Algeria, the oil ex these oil exporters that previously saved most of their oil revenues have increased spending dramatically. If we look at the major oil exporters, not only in the region, but also in countries like Russia, they now need an oil price of somewhere between 80 to $110 a barrel to balance their budgets. That's not, that's not sustainable for the global economy. Um, 
And it also means, and, and so some of the structural pressures that they would have faced anyways have come home to, <coughs> are coming home to roost more quickly than they might otherwise. Now, when we look across the GCC countries, um, and I guess in the Middle East more generally, we tend to, tend to divide them based on the small, you know, small countries that have a high oil or gas output per capita and thus more capacity to spend. Um, and, and more willingness in many cases, and countries that don't have, that don't have the same amount of, of resources. It's no surprise that it was in Bahrain and Oman that some of the most extensive pressures to the regime emerged. Um, it's also, um, but, but I think what's important across the region is to note that the focus on short-term stabilization which is the natural response in a crisis, has meant that the trajectory of government spending is not only high, but is going almost entirely towards either building out public wage bills, build, increasing transfers to the population. And what we've seen is, in most cases, cuts to public investment, cuts to infrastructure. Um, there's some exceptions to that. Saudi Arabia does continue, does continue to invest. We're also seeing a bit of increase in debt issuance, levering up to finance those, those investments. Um, but in general, we see a circumstance that is even more acute in the non-oil-rich countries in the Middle East, across North Africa, um, both oil countries and non-oil non exporters, where public investment is been what's, what's been cut at the same time that private investors, or perhaps in this region maybe quasi-private investors, because the sovereign wealth funds of the region have been, have been important players in, the, in these regions. Um, that, and that has a big, has a, is a very much a concern for future, for future growth. Um, because I think what's going, given this somewhat bleak global outlook that I laid out at the beginning, the competition for long-term capital will only become you know, more acute. Now that's not because there aren't a lot of investors who are looking for, who are looking for return. In fact, the big challenge is, is where to find that yield. But countries will be more and more uh, differentiated by their business environment and, and policy coordination is becoming more difficult. I want to kind of conclude with just a brief set of brief point on, on energy and the energy balance, particularly to respond to Jared's point on, on shale gas and, and shifts in, in that way. Um, you know, in, there are, just as, as China has long been the sort of big potential you know, future demand, you know, demander or the driver of demand growth for oil, as have uh, other emerging markets, the big elephant in the room on the demand side is also how much, how much oil output will come out of Iraq. And that's something we can talk about in a little bit more detail. Um, but in general, we see a circumstance where the biggest source of demand, of supply growth in oil is going to come out of North America, particularly the U.S. and Canada. Um, if, if we look out to the medium term, we do think Iraq will slowly get more production, is likely to put more production online. But the political and institutional dynamics and, and, and focus in Iraq, we think will, will really limit its ability to bring more, um, more oil onto the table. In addition to the one of the outcomes of the demographic issues Jared mentioned is the fact that the Middle East 
and oil exporters in general are some of the biggest growing consumers of, of oil and power in this way. And that's really, that's the other sort of ticking time bomb of the ability of these governments to continue to buy the time that they have um, to, to date. As for shale gas, um, the, we see the, the we, we see that increase over the next, we see that on a global level, U.S. exports of shale gas being a more medium or longer term story. The infrastructure is not there yet, but it is really, I would say, more of a risk to natural gas supplies that have not yet come online particularly some of the supplies in the Mediterranean, particularly in Israel where you face institutional but also some political issues, but also some of the supplies um, that are being tested in, off of East Africa. Um, but this is, shale gas has been a modest support to U.S. growth already to date. It's not just shale gas, but also tied oil. The states where, where exploration has been done have been growing more quickly um, than other parts of the country. But also, it's not just a test to the Middle East, to some extent, in terms of power, but it's also a test to Asia. Natural gas costs in, in Asia have long been the most, the most expensive in the global economy, and so to the extent that there are more supplies coming online and a more s small steps towards a more global, global uh, system, that will be... Um, that will uh, only gradually sort of improve the competitiveness dynamic in Asia. Um, with that, I'm sure I've taken far more than my 10 minutes. So, well, um, <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm feeling quite depressed right now. <laughs> I am hearing from my right side someone who does talk about East Asian resilience the same way that I believe but he's been very heavily emphasizing the downside risk to all these developments out there. And on my left side, I've just heard Rachel describe her outlook as being a bleak global scenario. So I never thought I would say this, but I'm now going to turn to the Eurozone to try and cheer me up. <laughs> so, Ian. Okay, well, thank you, Danny. Um, you could say that I've been given the poison chalice <laughs> trying to find optimism in the, the Eurozone. But bear with me, it's just possible that I can do so. And you can see from my subtitle here that I believe there are two very paradoxical aspects of what's been going on in Europe that really haven't been well understood in either the media comment or what's been going on in the, the markets. Now here's a, an elliptical way of approaching this. Was it the problem, or is it still the problem? <laughs> it's the following, I think. First, I don't think anybody doubts that the way monetary union was set up was never fully worked through. And what happened was that in the rather fortunate first decade of, of, of the euro, what's sometimes been called the great moderation, or as Jerry puts it, made in China, held down prices, made everything look straightforward. So it, it looked like a, in 2008 as though the, the euro had been an unremitting success. So the, the collapse thereafter is, to some extent, a puzzle. But there are, now, with hindsight, it's very obvious what happened. The first is that, very simply, there isn't a federal budget at European level. And in the absence of a federal budget, two of the things that you expect a federal level to do 
simply could not be done. One was to provide the forms of macroeconomic stabilization that people expect, so that when, when the U.S. turned down, the U.S. was in a position to engage in a huge fiscal stimulus. Even China, we're told, did it. Whether China did it correctly is a separate question, but it was able to do it. Whereas the European level lacks a budget capable of engaging in fiscal stimulus. And it's aggravated by the fact that any time there's a problem of public debts, there isn't a European capacity to underpin these debts, to backstop them. We also have an absence at European level of many of the things that happen normally in a, in a financial crisis, such as a capacity to resolve failing banks. That, too, is a flaw in the system. But it's aggravated still further by the absence of a common <coughs> debt. Some of you in the room may know that uh, one of the great secrets of Alexander Hamilton, one of the, the founders of the U.S. Constitution, was to create in 1790 what became the Treasury bond. There is still no European equivalent of the Treasury bond, and it's heavily resisted, Euro bonds this is, by the Germans for the not unreasonable reason that they think <coughs> that they would have to pay for it. But it also pervades other things like the possibility of using uh, deposit insurance, which is seen by the Germans as another form of mutualization of debt. And then what you also find at the European level is that the, the private flows, the, the flows of labor, the flows of capital for investment, but also the various insurance mechanisms that are built up within a normal uh, currency area were absent. So that provides less scope for adjustment. Moreover, the European Central Bank, although it's emerging as one of the heroes of the crisis, has a very uncertain mandate. We know that it's supposed to pursue price stability, but we don't know to what extent it's supposed to pursue uh, financial stability or to deal with the, these vast issues of currencies, it's skating on very thin ice in what it's been doing. And in all of this, there's one very fundamental phenomenon, which is there is no such thing as a European taxpayer. There are only national taxpayers. So it would be a bit like the US trying to run its economy with taxpayers only paying in Connecticut, California, <coughs> not much in California, but other states, in, in ways that uh, cannot be aggregated at a federal level. So, the first paradox, the one I think that's been fundamental to the way we perceive this crisis, is that European leaders have been guilty of what I've said here. Indecision, procrastination, protection of national interest. But the other side of the paradox is that if you look at what's happened in Europe over the last two or three years, it's, it's unprecedented. The scale of governance reform that's been going on. Here it is. What's been going on... Attempts to create the famous big bazookas. There's first something called the European Financial Stability Mechanism and then the European Financial Stability Facilities. Acronym soup, this is. <laughs> Three bailouts, one duplicated for Greece. The Greek, what's called private sector involvement, which is in effect writing down Greek debt. Two partial rescues, Spain and Cyprus, in progress. And now the European Stability Mechanism, the new permanent fund that we use to deal with it. You also have a huge number of innovations on fiscal discipline and trying to discipline the economies. You see the list of it. I won't go through them in detail. But they're summed up in this expression of fiscal compact. And then you have massive governance reforms. The Germans, the French and others agreeing to things that two or three years ago were inconceivable, such as letting Brussels look at their books first, examine what's going on. All these European councils. And now we have in prospect... Banking union, fiscal union, political union, things that 
you might have thought were inconceivable the way that, that were, it was developing not that long ago. And then my second set of paradoxes has to do with the way markets have theme, seen things. In 2008, the spread between Greek bonds and German bonds was virtually zero. Now it's astronomical. And it just went from zero to astronomical overnight <coughs> as, as things are, what deteriorated. I think many of the assessments that come off uh, come up around about the euro area, not just from markets, but also from many of the, dare I say it, North American Anglo-Saxon <laughs> economists, take the view that uh, all we have in Europe is a fixed exchange rate system. And you can come and go from it just in the, in as easily as you change your shirts or your underwear. But that's not the case. The single currency is a very different animal. And uh, one throwaway line I sometimes give it is, is when, when we talk about California's crisis, nobody ever talks about California leaving the dollar because that's inconceivable. Then you get the paradox that uh, Mario Monti keeps lamenting. Every time he does the right thing, the credit, the credit ratings agencies give him a worse rating. And in short, what I'm trying to say on this is that the analysis that's been going on by markets, by so many commentators, really has been perverse in what it's been doing. So how do I explain these paradoxes? Well, first I think we have to think of the notion that time in political terms is not the same as time in market terms. Occasionally the politicians can do things over a weekend. They showed it in 2008, where Jerry mentioned Gordon Brown's attempts to patch together a solution. They showed it in May 2010 when, when the, the first attempt to rescue the Eurozone was, was put in place. But many of the other things that are being countenanced require constitutional change or at least major political decisions. Contrast that with what markets want. They want everything done by yesterday. If you don't do it by yesterday, you're failing. So this contrast in political and market time I think is central to the paradox. And you have to recognize as well that governments need to persuade people. Now, if you were, if you were Angela Merkel, you would say, yes, I've got Bild Zeitung, I've got the right wing of the CDU party, I've got the specter of the Constitutional Court, all of this hanging on what I'm able to do, hanging over what I'm able to do. So she has to justify these reforms and gradually persuade people. You have, if you're a Greek to explain why what looks like unfair reforms have to, be taken, have to be taken. You have to explain to your populations that there is a common interest in this that's not the same as the individual national interests. So all of these things have to be put together. We have, a, I think, a false debate in Europe about whether growth or austerity is, is correct. I think it's, it's a, 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 they're not credible alternatives. You have to promote growth, yes, but there's not an option of foregoing the austerity because of the... the the delicate point which debts have reached. When debts are 70, 80, 90, 100% of GDP, they can easily go wild. We know this. And this is precisely what's facing the US at the moment because of the, of the famous fiscal cliff. And in all of this, I would argue that what has been consistently missed in Europe is the extent of the political commitment to avoid trouble. What we should do is reinvent George Bush the first. Now, this is a joke because George Bush I, in, when he said, read my lips, was proved not to be honest. But I think what you, what you do see now is, that's Mario Draghi, for those who don't, who don't know him, the, the woman on the right you might have seen before sometime. They're now making it clear that they want this to be resolved. 
and in making that resolved, I think we, what we're now seeing is a, the children's game of chicken taking place at many levels. You know, the idea of this game is you, wait for, you run towards somebody and wait for the other one to move out of the way. Now, the games of chicken that are going on are the European Central Bank throwing down the gauntlet to the member states, saying, you act, and if you act, we will act, and vice versa. We have the, the markets chasing the governments, and the governments chasing the markets. We have individual leaders, the club med leaders against Angela Merkel and, and the, the club Baltic leaders. We have citizens not sure what, the, what they have facing all of this. They're stuck in the middle. They, they think, why are we being asked to bail out banks? Why are we not being consulted? Why aren't we being listened to? And all of this, to me, sums up in, in two words. <coughs> the question about this is who pays? Who assumes the burden of, of dealing with this? So since Danny's asked us for provocations, here's my five rash ones. The first is that the European Central Bank in particular has bought time, and it's done, done so by stretching its mandate to breaking point. Yet another acronym is something OMT, or Outright Monetary Transactions. This is Eurospeak for a form of quantitative easing with uh, some differences. Second proposition, although the euro crisis is not over, it needs an exit roadmap and continued decisive leadership. I think it leads on to a third point. The leaders, as far as I can read the, the, the runes in this, they do now get it. Even Samaras in Greece gets it after two years of procrastination and causing difficulties. Moreover, I think that the new governance framework is one which is going to work far better than the past. And if you think of it as a, a jigsaw puzzle, whether it started in 2010 with two pieces of the jigsaw in place, I would say something like 90% is now being completed. We await what happens to the banking union. Moreover, again, below the surface, huge economic rebalancing has been going on in Europe. Now, how many in the room know that Greece has effectively devalued by something like 20% relative to the Germans? You wouldn't believe it to read the press, but unit labour costs in Greece have fallen relative to Germany by something like 22% between 2009 and the projections for the end of this year. That's a massive devaluation. The trouble for Greece is devaluation isn't the solution. They need to build export industries rather than have it. And I think Greece is the one area where there is, there is still a major problem and it may well end up with a significant default. So maybe, this is my last word in this, just maybe this time we can start to be optimistic about what's going to happen in Europe. Now, I'd like to finish by quoting Marx, because Marx, Marx envisaged all of this in the past. <laughs> you can see what he says here, that politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly and applying the wrong remedies. It's not in Das Kapital, because this was Groucho. <laughs> Arnab, can I turn to you to round off our discussion? Okay. Well, th thanks very much, and thanks for, for inviting, uh, inviting me here. Um, I studied for many years at LSE, so it's always a, always a pleasure to come back, um, and, and particularly to be misanthropic um, when I do. Um, and I have to say, I mean, listening, listening to everyone and sharing essentially the same set of facts, um, I come away with conclusions that are quite different, except maybe from, uh, from Rachel, um, maybe more extreme than, than what Gerard said. Um, and I have to say, this quote from Groucho Marx, um, I think, is spot on and makes me <laughs> pessimistic <laughs> rather, rather than optimistic. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk about four different aspects um, of, of this crisis and, and the situation 
um, and, and try to be a little bit um, aside from the Middle East, although somewhat linked to it. Um, so one, uh, about the, the world economy and the global growth model that we had and that we no longer have. Um, two, about the Eurozone and the broader European Union. Um, three, uh, about my adoptive country, the United States. Uh, and four, about emerging markets, uh, including my native country, India. Okay, so let's start with the wider world. Um, what we had before the financial crash in 2008 was a clearly unsustainable gro global growth model, which required within countries ever larger amounts of debt issuance, in some countries to, to foreigners, in some countries in, essentially within the Eurozone, for example, so somewhat domestic. But ever larger amounts of indebtedness had to be accumulated in order to sustain the growth rates that were going on in the world. Some countries were creditors, like China, and some countries were debtors like the United States, or Germany as a creditor, or the Netherlands within the Eurozone, um, and uh, others in the periphery of Europe. You know, back then in the go-go days, we used to call them the Club Med. Now, in our darker moments, we call them the pigs. Um, but, you know, the story is imbalances internationally and ever-rising debts um, domestically in the financial system and particularly in the banking system. The banks pretended, or some banks anyway, pretended otherwise. They pretended to have something called an originate-to-distribute model, um, which meant that um, they had originated all this debt and then sort of moved it off their balance sheets, parked it in warehouses um, and with investors, and so the risk had been dissipated, and so nobody ever really needed to worry about the fact that um, we had an ever-rising debt-financed global growth model. Well, of course, that turned out to be complete poppycock and uh, more or less a traditional... Uh, run-of-the-mill banking crisis occurred, except that it was systemic and that it was global. Um, and so it took down the entire planet within hours, right? It was probably worse than anything else that had ever happened in history. It's fair to say that the lights started to go out. And I remember being in Singapore um, in the days after Lehman, and you could literally, from day to day, see the harbor filling up with container ships. Um, so fast was everything shutting down. And in fact, something that had never really happened before started to happen, right? Letters of trade credit dried up, right? So everything in the world was seizing up. Um, so all of those imbalances associated with ever-rising flows of trade and investment were grinding to a halt like that, right? So we no longer have that problem in a certain sense because imbalances are significantly lower than they were back then, right? The U.S. current account deficit, which was around six and heading towards eight or nine or something, is now down at two or three. Uh, the Chinese current account surplus, which was uh, 10, is now around 3. Um, the current account deficit of the pigs, which was well in the double digits of GDP, except in the case of Italy, um, is, is now down significantly. Some countries are even in some months running current account surpluses. So you could say the international counterpart of this, um, the global counterpart of this domestic problem has been significantly reduced. But, of course, internally, everything is in imbalance as well, right? Gerard mentioned, uh, uh, Rachel also mentioned, unemployment rates are very high, growth rates are very low, and there's a lot of, um, how should I put it, money being hoarded, a lot of money being created, but there's a lot of cash being hoarded by households, by governments, uh, in some cases emerging markets, central banks in particular, and by corporations, right? So nobody has any confidence that this situation is stable or sustainable, and that is absolutely correct. Despite the wool that is being pulled over our eyes by policymakers, particularly in the Eurozone and in other places, I'd agree with, disagree with, uh, with Ian quite strongly, and come back to that. 
Um, so we have a world economy that is in better balance, but we have a bunch of domestic economies that are in much worse balance than they were before. And of course, the reason for that is because the dread deleveraging is taking place. Right? And that deleveraging um, can happen in a variety of different ways. Right? You can have an, essentially have a substitution of the deleveraging of the private sector with a re-leveraging of the, pro of the public sector. That's what was happening as a result of Gordon Brown's uh, coordinated G20 fiscal stimulus, discretionary fiscal stimulus, combination with automatic stabilizers, and of course bailouts. Right? So that happened in Japan, essentially, uh, on and off for the last 30 years. Um, it's happening and still happening. It, it had happened and is still happening in the United States. Was happening in the Eurozone and in the wider European Union, but it's been brought to a drastic halt in the Eurozone by the Eurozone crisis. Right? And that is why there is an important risk of a drastic deleveraging that will take place, is taking place in the periphery of Europe. Right? And those drastic deleveragings, when they happen, um, very suddenly and very precipitously. They may help solve the debt problem. There may even be some write-offs of debt as in Greece. But we all know from history how these things pan <coughs> out, right? What you get is great depressions. In the United States, this is what we used to do throughout the 1800s after that wonderful moment of federalism um, by Alexander Hamilton and, and others. After we created the federal debt, we created an enormous moral hazard the consequence of which was the states learned that they could borrow, right? And they could pass the buck up the chain to the federal government and have the entire republic deal with their local excesses. And of course that inevitably eventually became politically unsustainable. And so the second or third time, or maybe it was the fourth time, I can't really remember anymore, that the same thing happened, Congress said, not this time. And the result was the banking panic of 1837 and what was then called the Great Depression of the 1840s, and that history was repeated several times um, through the 1930s. It wasn't always the states, right? It was sometimes uh, part of the economy, a sector, the financial sector usually. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the character of what happened. And every time this problem happened back then in the U.S., we chose to let the system crash and burn. And that is because the haves would not pay for the problems of the have-nots. And that's more or less what's going on in the Eurozone, right? The Germans, as Ian actually suggested obliquely, are very reluctant uh, to take the full hit or to make transfers um, or to li uh, mutualize their liabilities or to provide insurance of any kind um, for the have-nots, to which they have been lending a lot of money um, until very recently. Right? Now, inevitably, they will take a hit. That's what always happens. Creditors take the hit because they try to enforce payment on the debtors, and the debtors are manifestly not good for it. In much the same way that subprime households um, in the United States were clearly unable to pay their mortgages, it should be very clear that the periphery of Europe is unable to repay its debt to the core. Just look at how much is owed. Greece, obviously, everybody agrees it's a special case. It's a basket case. You know, they gave us representative democracy and sovereign default um, and hemlock and various other things. So it's kind of a, a joking matter now. But just take the case of Spain, right? Spain owes the rest of the world, and mainly the north of Europe, 180% of GDP gross, 120 net. No big country has ever really been good for that amount of debt. Um, you know, most emerging market countries, when they go over the edge in terms of external debt, they owed 60. 
percent gross, right? When um, Krugman famously wrote about a coyote moment for the dollar, when you know Wiley e. Coyote runs off the edge of the cliff, looks down, there's nothing supporting him, so he crashes down to earth. That's what was going to happen to the dollar. The excessive external debt of the United States was 25 percent of GDP, right? So Nobel Prize winners were worrying about the dollar when the U.S., the country with most of the guns, most of the butter, most of the innovation, most of the water, and it turns out a lot of the energy in the world was at 25. What makes anyone think Spain is good for it at 180 gross and 120 net? Right? Spain, innovation, not since the Inquisition. Right? Um, and those were instruments of torture, which you know, <laughs> are, are being revisited on, on the Spanish now right? by, their, by their German cousins. Um, so anyway, I mean, the, the, the debt problem is, of course, the symptom of the underlying economic model that doesn't work. Solve the debt problem, and you solve the symptom. What's the cause? The real exchange rates are misaligned. Um, Ian pointed out that there's been a massive um, maxi devaluation, internal devaluation, through a deflation of wages and prices of, and, and a reduction in unit labor costs in Greece and other countries. That is very good news. But, of course, it makes the external debt burden totally unsustainable. In order to repay that external debt burden in fully valued euros, once you've reduced wages and prices, you require a much larger proportional resource transfer to the rest of the world to make good on it. So it's self-defeating. It cannot work. It's pure arithmetic, right? So sooner or later, not only is the debt going to have to be forgiven and restructured, but at some point, the growth model is going to have to be changed. And in the end, um, there's probably going to be more than one exit from the Eurozone, right? If you think about it, you have every kind of crisis you could imagine in the Eurozone. You have a banking crisis, you have a fiscal crisis, you have a public debt crisis, private debt crisis, political crisis, banking crisis. You're telling me you're not going to have a currency crisis. How often does that happen? Hardly ever. You know, people come up with three examples. Estonia, Latvia, and Hong Kong. Well, with all due respect, Hong Kong, you know, wonderful place, large fiscal reserve, um, and very high savings rate, right? And so, therefore, able to deal with the currency pressures in the Asian crisis of 1997. Estonia and Latvia, well, very flexible, willing to do almost anything to stay out of the grip of the Russian bear and to stay in the West. With all due respect, Western Europe, I'm sorry, it's not the same, right? particularly the periphery. People are spoiled, they're lazy, um, they have very um, rigid labor markets, very inflexible, even though they have a fixed exchange rate or a currency union, however you want to slice and dice it, um, and um, are unwilling to change any of those things. Right? So something sooner or later is going to have to give. We totally agree the ECB is um, the hero of this, of this uh, ongoing crisis and has substantially staved off disaster risk by committing to spend an unlimited amount of money um, that it will create in due course, as indeed the Fed and the Bank of England and the Bank of Japan have already done. But then you have to ask yourself, what is money, right? If you can just print some money, or in the case of the ECB, commit to print some money and not actually do it, and make all these problems go away, well, then we need never have a crisis, right? Just leverage yourself up have a bubble, enjoy the party, and when the hangover comes, instead of taking aspirin, print some money, and the problem will go away. Mm. Money, frankly, is nothing, right? Mm. If it's well-managed, it's a medium of exchange, a store of value, and all of those kinds of things. But money is not the same as capital, right? Money is not a resource. 
And the problem is about resources and resource transfers in the Eurozone. So there's a lot to be done in just in, in dealing with the macroeconomic dynamics of the crisis, let alone the governance issues and, uh, and the political economy issues. Um, going back to the example of the U.S. And, and stretching it to some other countries, what I would try to say about the Eurozone is that having all of those institutions and all of those reforms is the price of admission for maintaining monetary union. It confers survivability. It doesn't confer optimality. So I already described the U.S. has this long history of financial collapse. Latin America, very quickly, has a long history of financial explosion. Whenever in Argentina or Brazil, you know, some state governor somewhere or some other sector decides to leverage themselves up excessively and socialize that problem across the Argentine or Brazilian Republic, they had historically succeeded. The result of federalizing that problem excessively was hyperinflation or sovereign default because of excessive issuance of external federal debt or both, repeatedly. It's been happening for 100 years in Argentina. They haven't solved the problem. The Brazilians are now solving the problem. That's why the relationship between Argentina and Brazil has flipped in the last 20 years. In the 1990s, Argentina was perceived to be a very strong country and Brazil to be a weak one. It's flipped around now. But anyway, so the, the Latin experience is... The South American experience, financial explosion. The North American experience is financial collapse. In South Asia, where I come from, we have this problem in spades. Our solution is financial repression. We can't tolerate inflation, and we can't tolerate collapse. So we stuff the banks with federal bonds and state bonds, and we ring-fence them with capital controls and reserve requirements and try to keep everything under control. And then, laterally, we've tried to catch up the Chinese growth rates to help keep it under control as well. It's a bit of a ridiculous way of running a country, right? Second largest country, or sorry, largest uh, population in the future in the world, second largest today, you try to run it the same way as, uh, as China to, to, to achieve the same growth rates without um, any of the same factor endowments or characteristics, you're bound to hit the, uh, hit the problem at some point, and that's happening now. Right? And I'll, I can come back to that in a minute. But so the South Asian solution is financial repression. The Chinese solution is to say that we don't have this problem. Provincial governments in China aren't allowed to borrow. So you go talk to the provincial governments, they say, okay, fine, we can't borrow. We create these things called ICs, investment companies. They're not banks, ICs, UDICs, whatever. Um, they issue a lot of debt, um, they invest. We don't do that, they're arm's length from us. They engage in public works projects, they build roads that fall apart, they go you know, roads from A to B where nobody lives in A, nobody goes to B, or at least not that many people drive from A to B. Um, you have a state-of-the-art infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. All looks good, very gleaming. You know, lots of aluminum smelters, many of which are kept turned off because if they were turned on, they would cause the global price of aluminum to crash and therefore would make explicit what is really happening there in NPL. So what do the Chinese do about this? They go through serial bailouts and they don't change behavior. At least that's what's happened until now. We think that may be about to change and why China will fall into the middle-income trap that Gerard alluded to, that India and other countries are already falling into in emerging markets. Right? China will slow down. There will ine inevitably, eventually, there will be a financial crisis. But even if there isn't a hard landing now, there will be a significant slowdown as they rebalance away from net trade and investment towards consumption. It has to be the case mathematically because consumption um, is a very low share of GDP. Right? It's about a little over a third. So there are issues about how you measure that and so on. But anyway, the, the point is that for China to generate the same rates of GDP growth that it has in the past, consumption would have to grow phenomenally fast, unbelievably fast, 
um, in order to lift GDP at the same kind of high single-digit, let alone low double-digit growth rates that China and the world have become used to. So the rebalancing that is taking place in the world because of all of these issues of external debt and excessive credit in the case of China will come home to roost in a much slower growth rate. And in the end, China will not be able to avoid, avoid some kind of crisis. No country with an investment bubble ever has. No country ever will, by definition, right? If you, if you believe there's a bubble. If you don't believe there's a bubble, well, all this investment, all this net trade in China was the mirror image of all of the bubbles in the West. Public and private debt in the Eurozone, private debt in the, in the United States, right? So you can't, it's very hard to disaggregate the two, and it's very hard, I think, to believe that there was a bubble in the West and that there wasn't an offsetting issue in the East. It's all part of one picture, one puzzle. Um, okay, so uh, plenty about, about the Eurozone and emerging markets. Um, maybe I should turn now to, to the U.S., um, and as, as Danny said, and I, I, I'll try to go very quickly here. Um, so the U.S., obviously, everybody has alluded to, um, to the fiscal cliff. Um, we think in the end uh, that the consensus is probably correct about what will happen in the fiscal cliff. There won't be anything like the 45 or 5% of GDP that is in the full fiscal cliff. If, you know, if, if everybody agrees to disagree and walks away from it, um, that would be an unprecedented uh, tightening in one, in one calendar year in the U.S. and would cause a double dip in the United States and would almost certainly cause a global recession because the U.S. is still the world's largest importer. Right. So we think probably there'll be some sort of last-minute compromise, one, one and a half percent of GDP fiscal drag. That will also be quite bad because the U.S. is barely growing one and a half, two percent. Take out one, one and a half, and you'll slow down towards the stall speed. So you might still get into a double dip in the U.S. if there are further shocks during 2013 from oil prices going up too high because of an escalation in the Middle East or more shocks in the Eurozone or whatever. What, you, you name it, right? Anything could go wrong. And the margin for error, if there's a significant front-loaded fiscal adjustment in the U.S. at the same time that there's a front-loaded fiscal adjustment pretty much everywhere in the world, um, or at least in, in, in its major trading partners, will cause a major problem. Having said all of those things, we would also say that the U.S. Um, is the best of a bad bunch. It has, despite all its warts and all its difficulties in, uh, in the political gridlock, has managed the financial crisis the best of all of the countries in the world. Right? The textbook case, it isn't quite that by far, but it has allowed prices, um, asset prices in the asset side of bank balance sheets to clear. It's recapitalized the banks most aggressively of all of the major countries that are caught in this problem. Um, and it has deleveraged the banks and through defaults has deleveraged the household sector. What lies ahead is a deleveraging of the public sector, already started in state and local governments and it's spreading to the federal government. And that implies that the U.S. will also be a slower-growing region um, than it has been. Right? So we'll have slower growth in emerging markets, we'll have slower growth in the U.S., and in 2013 we'll have a recession continuing in the Eurozone. Going forward in the Eurozone, there will be a surplus, right? The Eurozone is almost certain to become a surplus region. The savings rates in the north will remain high. The savings rates in the south are being forced higher by the creditor countries in the north. Savings rates in the north will remain high because of the losses that they have to take and because of the demographics. So we will have a world in which the imbalances will continue. Maybe China will become the biggest importer in the world and its surplus will go down. 
but there will still be a problem of excessive savings and inadequate final demand. So we're looking forward to a world that will grow more slowly, maybe more sustainably, but it will be a much more difficult world in which to have a good time. <laughs> Thank you, Arno. Thank you very much. Um, okay. But Greenland I, is looking good. <laughs> Greenland, yes. I would, um, no I, would, I would like to say a few words before I open up to questions. Um, you will have, I'm sure that all of you will have heard that joke about how you put two economists in a room and you come away with three different opinions, uh, at least. But as I sit here, I actually hear overwhelmingly one opinion about the global economy. There are small variations, but my, my panelists up here on stage are almost uniformly pessimistic or cautious about the way the world is going. And what struck me as I was listening to this and cataloging their complaints about the global economy was that although they all came out pessimistic, they all had different reasons for being pessimistic. And it was just when I thought, okay, we've run out the barrel, we're no longer able to find reasons to be unhappy about the world, someone else will come up with yet a different reason and a different one. And so I felt that the challenge for me to round off the discussion before opening it up to you was to try and provide an alternative view. My fellow panelists have been very careful about reading the world's data and telling you about the sad situation they were in. I want to try and read the same data, but then be irresponsibly optimistic. I want to try and say how some of these same observations about the world can actually be viewed in a slightly different way. And that gives me a more po positive, upbeat way to think about the world. So on this, I build on some things that Jared said in his opening statements, and then some others I've been trying to think about. When Jared began, he, talk about, he talked about pessimism all around in the global economy. And I kept trying to see where he might come upon a bright spot anywhere. When he came to how the world's performance following the 2008 global financial crisis was actually quite divided, there were some parts of the world that had performed better than others. I thought, here it is. Here's where we're going to hear on the one hand this and on the other hand that. That particular bright spot was China or emerging Asia. But Jared very quickly went on to point out correctly, I think, that China has had a good run of, a good streak of, of economic performance, but it faces formidable difficulties going forwards in its structural transformation from the growth model that it has enjoyed so far to the new growth, new growth model that it needs to transition towards. He referred to this, as well as others, I referred to this as the possible middle income trap that China has got to a point where it has eked out all the, the low-hanging low fruit that developing economies can pick up, and now it's got to do the hard things. When he and others put that you know, in the context of how fundamentals in the West are fragile, China is having to undergo this transformation. The Middle East is faced with its demographic and democracy issues and its diversification issue. I thought that was the end the global economy has no hope anymore. Rachel 
went further. She talked, she focused on the Middle East among a range of other issues, but then she talked about a lot of the Arab Spring implications that many of us have been concerned about, not least in Kuwait. And she remarked on how one of the developments going forward for you know, noticing the Arab Spring is how governments are going to find it fiscally more difficult to engage in productive investment looking forward to the future, but they will need to put more attention and more resources to taking care of their dissatisfied people. And some of this dissatisfaction comes from demographics. Some of it comes from the very young population that we've seen there who are unable at this point to find jobs going forward that they think they deserve. A lot of it is an overhang from a pattern of economic development that has relied too strongly on the strong reserves of natural resources that those regions have enjoyed so far and that they need to move away from. So there again, I thought, this is it. This is the end. We cannot go any deeper. Ian was very nicely upbeat towards the end of his talk, not least because we all like Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx has good, interesting observations to say about the world. But you'll also notice that the way he begins his talk was about the serious debt problem that we see in the Eurozone. And depending on how you read it, actually an absence of political commitment on solving these problems, political commitment and political institutions. And then finally, Arnab just totally let loose on every single problem we could think about that was wrong in the world. Not only were there national characteristics that were uh, that come into the mix, there was deleveraging that we still had to go through, there was moral hazard, there were debt problems, there was a misalignment of exchange rates, that what we would need going forward was a complete reboot of the global economy, that you know, some of the rest of us who are actually relatively pessimistic still thought that OMT and quantitative easing or credit easing or something central banks could do would rescue us, but he shot that down as well, that monetary policy was really not something that we could rely on. And when you turn around and looked at the world, the U.S. debt situation was, was a situation to despair on, but it was actually the best of the bad bunch. So I left this thinking, my goodness, I am not going to be, I've, I've organized a panel that has totally depressed the entire LSE population. I, I cannot let this happen. So let me be irresponsible. Let me try and suggest that there are different ways to think about the world. And I pick up on what Jared said. Okay, so let's look at what actually happened in the world following 2008-2007. The world underwent a boom, as he said. In terms of the numbers, the world was actually booming from 2008 on until this year. Where did that boom come from? Well, some of it was indeed the United States. Some of it, as Arnab says, the U.S. did a lot of the right things and managed to get their economy partially rebooted. But here's the fact. The U.S. contributed $1.5 trillion in growth to the global economy since 2007-2008. But the rest of the world one country in particular contributed three times what the United States did to the global economic growth. That was China. This economy that we've been critical of, of building roads that go nowhere, that build bridges that break down, that are building subways that don't really function, somehow, in terms of actually adding value to global GDP, it did three times what the United States did. 
And you know who actually came in second ahead of the United States in world contributions to global growth? Japan. Japan, another East Asian economy that's got strong foundations that's piling along that most of the rest of us had written off as suffering lost decades, actually contributed more to global growth than the United States did. What other countries did? Brazil, Russia, Indonesia. So the countries that are outside of our normal orbit, the countries for which there's still a lot of upside potential. Are these countries rapidly converging towards the middle income trap? Well, perhaps China, but not a lot of these others. And Japan, arguably, has already escaped that. The hope for China here is that there have only, as, as Jared pointed out, only be a handful of countries that evaded that middle income trap. By coincidence or otherwise, they all have similar characteristics to China. They have a Confucian work ethic. They're based on high savings. They're based on a kind of organization that we have really passed under, the, uh, let slip under our radar. They include countries like South Korea and Singapore. Um, is China or the rest of East Asia experiencing an investment bubble? This is a constant sore point in discussion because most people like to point out how China is now investing over 50% of its GDP and no country has been able to exp uh, sustain that. Isn't that an investment bubble? Well, it's true that when you do that calculation, that ratio comes up so high. But when you look at investment per person or per worker, China's investment per worker now is only 20% that in the United States or in Japan. China's investment on the upside still has a long way to go. Um, I don't think that there's an investment bubble there. I think that the strong GDP growth is indicative of something truly fundamental and profound going on there. And I would like Jared to take a little bit more seriously his own observations about East Asian resilience. Okay, that's my say on a counterpoint to my colleagues. Um, I would like now to open the floor to, uh, to the audience for, for questions. The person up here. I just wanted to ask the economists, are there any technological innovations in the pipeline that can change the picture in any of these zones? Thank you. Excellent question. Other questions? Any other questions? Yes, in back. Thank you very much. I'll go on um, my question to the Middle East. Um, <coughs> Um, there is a, a story in a given Middle East country that ministers batter uh, the populace who's sitting in the cafes. Look at the Chinese, how they're building bridges or whatever, they want projects. Why don't be like them? Uh, a turn of the event, the people told the minister uh, or the prime minister, please, can we import uh, Chinese ministers <laughs> to run the country? So uh, from this point, I want to see how the dichotomy between the popular uh, expectations and mm -hmm. uh, uh, a kind of running of the economies and whether in the rich or poor states. I mean, countries with surplus like uh, Algeria, $265 billion in a sovereign fund, Saudi Arabia and others. With the poor countries like Egypt, what kind of uh, investment and visions they've been mm -hmm. uh, put uh, on the table, you know, uh, industrial strategies, uh, diversification. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 
you could see on the other side of the coin that they are going into uh, renewables, whatever, that they are rich in economy. How wise this one? Since in the oil and gas economy, the, uh, the populace uh, did not, uh, did not uh, uh, play a part in the economic cycle and the production of. How is it going to do with the renewables and the, uh, and the other kinds of uh, economy? Uh, and does it match an investment a grade that you can say is going to achieve it or just is a pie in the sky? Thank you. Uh, in back, one more question before we hand over to the panel. Hi, a question on um, the Middle East countries pegging their currencies to the dollar. The Fed is currently engaging in so-called unlimited QE. That potentially poses quite a challenge to them. Um, exporting, and we've already seen quite high food prices this year. What's the future of those pegs, especially given this new US energy independence? There's always this trade-off of well, we'll buy your treasury bonds and you provide us with defense. That was Some people used to say like that. Now, if the U.S. is reorienting towards Asia, what's the future of that peg and what's the implications for the Middle East of, that, of, of the, the currency policies? What, what, you know, where do they go on, on that if you're a Middle East um, policymaker? Okay, thank you. Um, perhaps we could just take these questions before we head on. Uh, so... Rachel, could you start? ask yeah. you to begin? Sure. Um, I'll focus mostly on the last two, but just to say I think uh, technology innovation is quite important. And one region we did not talk about, and I was remiss in talking about it, but to add to sort of Danny's irrepressible sort of optimism of thinking about where the growth is, especially to the extent that things are more benign, is, is thinking about uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and also some pockets other places. And I mention that because things like mobile banking and internet penetration, a variety of things have helped sort of do some leak, leapfrogging of growth and technologies. Um, I think there, there is a, a, a question of how, how extensive this will be in supporting growth, but the, this, um, I think this is supportive. Um, the Middle East and popular expectations, and I think this role of the government in providing a vision of, and, and, and it's not, it's both the big vision, but also the steps along the way, and I think this is important across the region. I think we're at a point where the Egyptian government in particular is really trying to balance between its vision and a bureaucracy which is very, is, is quite concerned about meaningful changes in the political structure, meaningful changes in the economic structure, because I think in, in Egypt in particular you had a partial revolution, shall we say, you know, that's still being developed, you know, you have elements of, you know, parts of the regime still, still very much in place in some ways, and we've, there have been a lot of good press reports in recent days and weeks about the, um, the vision, the Renaissance project, which was put forward by the Muslim, by the Muslim Brotherhood and by the Freedom and Justice Party, having really fallen up, fallen, come up against the, the wall of the ministries that are very reluctant to see these changes. And so what it seems to be, and, and you know, the idea being here of steps towards a more innovative economy, investment-driven. And the government has aggressive num numerical targets of increasing investment as a share of GDP. Um, what concerns me looking at that is their aggressive targets of investment, their aggressive targets of getting towards 7.5% growth, good goals on, sustain on sustainability of that growth, but I just don't see a lot of 
um, thinking and communication of what it would take in order to do that. We are sort of heartened by some of the steps they've been willing to at least talk about in terms of subsidy reduction. In my view, across all the oil importing countries, the first steps are dealing with some of the food and fuel subsidies and dealing with the debt service costs. Because the debt service costs, particularly for Egypt, are really crowding out a variety of other investment. They're also crowding out an ability for the banks to be supportive. Um, I think more broadly on the expectations and importing Chinese workers and ministries, I think you hit on sort of an important dilemma that many countries face, whether it's in the Middle East or Africa or elsewhere, which, you know, when they're thinking about Chinese investment versus other investment, because what tends to happen when the Chinese, in, when they invest in a project, maybe you get a road or a bridge, but the you get the Chinese workers as well. And so in countries like Nigeria, for example, what you're seeing now is many cases one project at the, going to the Chinese and another going to a company that's going to hire locals um, and have some technology transfer of some sort. Now, there's lots of scope for corruption if you hire more locals. But to some extent, it's about skill building, technology transfer, and the like. And one of the reasons the Indians and the Brazilians um, have become more sought after in, in, in Africa has partly been because they've been a bit more private sector led to some extent and a bit more willing to transfer technologies perhaps than the, than the Chinese. Uh, pegging to the U.S. dollar. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I guess first, the first thing to say is that a lot of what I said about the unsustainability of policy in the Gulf had a lot to do with the medium term. I mean, in the short term, the short term policies mean growth is quite strong. I think over the medium term, pegging to the dollar doesn't make a lot of doesn't make a lot of sense in the short term, given the focus on stability and not wanting to rock the boat. I don't see a likely change there. Um, and I am talking particularly about the about about the Gulf and particularly about Saudi Arabia. Um, I think the, there was an extensive period of testing that peg in 2008 and 2007 <coughs> when just about every hedge fund in this city um, had a trade on betting on the, you know, betting on appreciation and breaking that peg. I think it's unlikely in the short term. Um, I've always thought, but I think the issue in the Gulf is also about, well, if you don't peg to the dollar, what do you peg to? There's continual chatter about Gulf Monetary Union, a variety of things like that, where Gulf Monetary, I mean, you could have a monetary union that is pegged to the dollar. You could have a monetary union that's pegged to a basket. Um, in my view, I would say um, moving is sort of a basket band crawl sort of approach that includes maybe tracking a, a basket of, of currencies that's more trade-weighted, mm. maybe includes oil as a share in that basket, could make more economic sense. Because, you know, the, these countries are selling, you know, their, their big export is, in, is priced in dollars. Um, they're say, and, but they're importing from Europe and they're importing from Asia. Um, I've always had a thought, we've always sort of had a thought that um, pegging to an oil export importing country's monetary policy doesn't make a lot of sense. 
the U.S. becoming uh, more energy sufficient um, itself doesn't necessarily change that argument because the idea that a mo the monetary policy of the United States is undergoing this balance sheet repair and lower growth um, doesn't seem like it would be appropriate for for some of the some of these economies. Um, are they going to come to that political decision in the short term? Probably not. Thank you. I, 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 Sorry, would like to, <laughs> I would like to hear the other views as well on the monetary pegging issue, but I also want to make sure that we pick up the technological breakthroughs possibility. So would anyone like to speak to that, Jared? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, three questions. Um, actually, to answer the first question, I'll come back and refute what Danny was saying. I thought I was relatively optimistic, actually. The world economy is growing quite um, 32, 62, 72. I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to swing from the ceiling. Uh, but one has to be realistic about it as well. Uh, basically, the world economy is going through the same shifts it's gone through twice before. 1870 to 1913, when America went from the fourth to the first biggest economy in the world, the world economy had a super cycle. If you were sat in parts of it, you didn't realize but it grew on average by 2.8% per annum over that 40-year period, higher than ever before. Um, 1945 to the early 70s was the second super cycle. Japan came on the scene, and it was when Europe basically granted itself things it can't afford, the, uh, the pension system. When Bismarck introduced the pension age in Germany, the end of the 19th century, and when it was endorsed everywhere subsequently. Pension age was set at 70 and life expectancy was 59. Um, Europe now pays itself beyond belief. The social welfare system in Europe is fundamentally flawed. The euro is fundamentally broken. But in terms of what was happening from 45 to the early 70s, it was a fundamentally strong period for the world economy. It grew by 5% per annum. Now, if you're just cutting somewhere between those two, and you assume 3.6% growth for the world economy over the next 20 years, which is not that, you don't even have to be that optimistic to assume it, the world economy is going to be more than doubling over that time in real terms, except it's people in the West who pay themselves too much, who expect benefits they can't afford, who are the ones who really face the problems. If you want to feel optimistic, jump on the plane and just go as far away as you can from Britain, uh, <laughs> apart, from the, apart from maybe the east coast of Australia, maybe. But it, there's an industrial revolution going on in China. The pace and scale of change is phenomenal. And coming back to the lady's question about technological change, President Obama's chief of staff three and a half years ago said, let's not waste the good crisis. America, up until last year, probably has wasted a good crisis. Britain has wasted a good crisis. You go to other parts of the world, they haven't. There's technological innovation going on beyond belief. Vietnam, Bangladesh. You want to have the best green factories? Where do you go? Bangladesh. Most people in the room wouldn't, would think you're talking out off your head if you say that. China's pushed up wages on the coast, partly to move production inland to where they need the jobs, partly to encourage export-orientated firms on the coastal areas to invest more. But the factories have moved off to low-cost centers elsewhere. Japan, as bad as things may be, I was there the other week, Japan is basically flatlined, but whereas we flatline at a low level, they have flatlined at a high level. Japan is at the cutting edge of technology for old people, uh, for robotics. You can't believe what's going on. Water. World Economic Forum a year and a half ago had a great session actually in Tanjing on water. Singapore, Australia, uh, basically... They have gone from watering crops to actually now you just have the exact amount of water, one drop if necessary, over 24 hours, falling on each crop. 
The technological innovation is everywhere. Maybe the most interesting thing is what happens in energy, because mm -hmm. energy, most people blame the crisis on the banks, and quite a few banks really did have a lot to account for. But also, we shouldn't forget, a year before the crisis, it was inevitable the U.S. was slowing down. Our forecast a year before crisis was that U.S. rates were going to 1%. market had them at 5.5% going up. We already had high energy prices then crippling the world economy. Energy is the thing that really cripples <coughs> things. And you can either have a price outcome, a supply outcome, i.e. the prices go up, outcome, output outcome in the sense you limit your exports, or a technological outcome. And what's happening because of high commodity prices is you're now seeing investment in, two net, in new technology and energy, hence shale gas in the States, although there's questions about that. But also Africa is benefiting from phenomenal inward investment. So there's lots going on. The key message, though, is that it's not going to be a straight-line path. Uh, second, Middle East. Um, I think um, the role of the state is probably the most interesting thing about this crisis. Before the crisis, the role of the state, sovereign wealth funds, foreign exchange reserves, the, the role of the state is becoming more apparent. But what you really need to see is improved infrastructure, not just road and rail, but soft and institutional infrastructure. Soft is um, culture, education. Institutional is accountability. Um, finally, the peg to the dollar. Yeah, I, they can't keep the peg to the dollar. Saudi Arabia wants to keep the peg to the dollar for the reasons that you alluded to in your question, the political commitment of the Americans. What we are seeing, though, the shift in the balance of power means that more countries around the world will change currency policy. In the past, countries tied themselves to the US dollar to get the credibility of the Fed. I don't hear too many people talk about, let's get the credibility of the Fed now. What will happen, though, is that these changes take ages. Um, coming back to your point about market and political time, but current, like Britain was the strongest country in the world. Some people probably still think it is the most important country in the world, but <laughs> the dollar replaced the pound about 40 or 50 years after Britain had lost its, lost its prime. So the shift away from the dollar... Who knows? It will probably take a lot longer. We calculate that 12.5% of Chinese trade is now paid for in Chinese currency. But the Chinese currency is not open. Do you buy the euro? Maybe if you're brave. Maybe if you're stupid. I don't know. Uh, but in terms of the Middle East, I think that what happens is that more countries around the world will start to set their currency policy to suit the countries they trade with. And new trade corridors means that the Middle East is looking eastward as well as westward, so that in time, if China and India open up their currencies a bit more, then you probably will see people resembling Singapore. You manage your currency against the basket. But for the moment, as we saw with sterling, you can have the current main currency remaining the currency of play for a long time. And we shouldn't forget that during the crisis, people still trusted the dollar, partly because U.S. markets are deep and broad. So coming back to your question, yes, I think currency policy not just in the Middle East, but elsewhere would change. But it's very difficult to predict the time span at which that change occurs. Thanks. Thank you, Jared. Uh, so to be clear, Jared just totally refuted me, and I'm ecstatic that he has done so. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, can, uh, we've, we're rapidly running out of time. In fact, I think we've exceeded time, I'm pretty sure. So uh, can I ask if Arnab or Ian would like some closing remarks on the, the final set of questions? Um, yes, just sure. very brief ones. Yeah. Sure. Um, okay, so on, on technology, um, yes, totally agreed. Um, that's the main reason for, uh, for any kind of optimism. It's certainly not coming from um, macro 
from the macro side. If anything, it's coming from the micro side, and, and I do think there's a lot there, and, and there's you know, going to be a lot of money and a lot of hay made out of technological innovation, and that's, that's the future, and, and Gerard talked about it quite well, so I, I won't say any more on that. Um, just try to say something about the dollar peg um, uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere, maybe, that is a bit different than, than what's already been said. For the Middle East, is this not, or particularly for Saudi and for other countries that are exporters of energy, is this not really a question about whether energy continues to be priced in dollars? Um, which, of course, is related to the reserve currency point that, um, that, that Gerard was making. Um, well, what are the alternatives? Um, even if we are extremely optimistic about the euro, it will take decades, if not centuries, for the euro to really institutionally to rival the dollar. Um, and if we're correct that the euro area will become a surplus region, it will not be providing financing for world growth by the issuance of euros, right? You need to have some sort of deficit. Maybe they'll have a deficit um, on their capital account that will be enough. Um, I'm not sure, right? Um, the alternative of China, well, I'm not convinced about that either. Um, if it's going to be a reserve currency rather than just a trade settlement currency, then as, as Gerard um, suggested, the asset markets in China need to be open. At the moment, they are not. So the best use of renminbi balances for those countries that accumulate them because they have a trade surplus with China um, is to buy Chinese goods because they can't buy Chinese assets. That looks to me to be a pretty comfortable place if you're sort of managing China today, right? Even if you are heading in the direction of becoming an importer uh, and a major importer in the world. And if so, you have a lot of dollars in your pocket burning a hole. Um, so if you think the Fed is incredible, you'll want to get rid of those dollars somehow. Um, so I, I think the whole reserve currency question is really up in the air, and I think the Americans are probably in the best position. So I'll quote Kindleberger on this. <laughs> I think he said, um, as I recall, in the beginning and the middle and the end, there was the dollar, only the dollar. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Ian, can I invite you for a very short, very short um, response? Three telegraphic points then. And the first is that we, we think of technology or innovation as being somewhere out there. There's this great new development that's going to transform the economy. I think that's a false way of examining it. And that what really is going to happen is diffusion of existing technologies, particularly to areas which have failed to catch up so far. And there's a huge potential for growth in that catch-up process. You only, only need to look at what's happened in Central and Eastern Europe to see that process when it works well, as in Poland, making a tra huge transformation and contributing to demand. Second is that innovation in services, I would argue, is set to be the great new industrial revolution, except it's the service revolution. And there are many opportunities there through the knowledge-based industries in which uh, universities we like to think they're in investing. Yeah. There, there's going to be a massive transformation. Mm -hmm. And the third point I want to make is that despite all the, the, the gloom about monetary policy, there's a tried and tested way of dealing with debt. It's called inflation. <laughs> Central banks for at least, or their predecessors for at least two millennia, have known how to, to get rid of debt. 
you inflate it away. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's and tough. Quantitative to... easing is yeah. a form of inflating away debt. So that is the answer to the question about uh, yeah. what QE is going to do. I was going to say, but you keep saying debt, but Europe's problem is not debt. Britain had a debt level to GDP of 250% after the Second World War. No one worried. You just got growth to get rid of it. If Europe actually said the problem is growth, they would actually solve the problem. If you say it's debt, you get yourself no, deeper into a problem. I wasn't relating this to yeah, Europe, I, I was answering a question about debt. Yeah, but, yeah. but in terms well, I think I would just say, you know, it, I think that's absolutely right. The trouble is, if everybody's deleveraging, it's going to be tough to get a lot of inflation, even if everybody, or all the more so, if everyone's doing some form of QE and you're at the zero bound expanding money, you're not going to be able to import a lot of inflation through the exchange rate, and you're not going to have a pickup in velocity and in the multipliers while the deleveraging is going on. Yeah. It's quite so possible that you get stuck. inflation across the emerging world. Yes, yes. yes. Exactly. But, yeah. absolutely. But Which doesn't you, help the debt problem. But you then get and high commodity prices feeding into Europe, yeah. and Europe yeah. still is in the deflationary mentality, yeah. which yeah. is the worst of all. Yeah. I'm trying to absolutely. be positive I think my, my panelists up here are getting more and more excited about the topic. And I'm going to have to call this to a halt because we're likely going to go on until the early hours of the morning. So if, if I may, can I just invite you to thank the panelists for...